Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Today we'll speak with Gordon Rouser, editor of the Annual Review of Resource Economics. Rouser has taught economics and statistics at UC Berkeley for 30 years and is former dean of the College of Natural Resources. Outside of academia, Rouser was senior economist on the Council of Economic Advisors under President Reagan and is the co-founder and former president of the Institute for Policy Reform in Washington, D.C. He's won numerous national awards for innovative research in the fields of agricultural and environmental economics, renewable resources, and public policy. He's also actively engaged in entrepreneurial activities and has founded several companies, including the Law and Economics Consulting Group. Professor Rouser, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. So let's start out. Um, Can you pinpoint a moment in your childhood or early education when you first became intrigued by economics? Yes, at five years old. Um, I grew up on a small family farm, uh, and there were a number of choices that had to be made, economic decisions. Uh, At five years old, I had total responsibility for nurturing and feeding all of the young calves on the property. And as a result, um, I learned about choices with regard to vaccination, uh, to protect uh, the animals against disease. I learned about the consequences of not nurturing them properly, uh, disease setting in, and young animals dying. So I learned a lot about economics very early. Um, I also learned about statistics and probability distributions with regard to the choices that my father and the family made with regard to allocating land across different kinds of commodities, growing corn, growing tomatoes, growing alfalfa, uh, and trying to manage the operations to achieve uh, a livelihood. So my first introduction to economics was a family business and learning about the important choices and what the consequences of those choices were with regard to uncertainties like unusual weather conditions, pests, um, and or diseases of animals. Was there any expectation that you would continue in the family business instead of going into a more academic career? Oh, certainly. Uh, If you grow up on a family farm, the expectation of your parents is that you will remain on the family farm. Um, And it turned out in my case that when I went away to college and I was introduced to statistics uh, and economics, I suddenly realized that the family operation could have benefited immensely by understanding those fundamental principles. Uh, But then, um, because I did so well as an undergraduate, I went on and uh, pursued my PhD. Were you able to bring some of what you learned back to the farm? Well, yes. In fact, it turned out, well, I was a graduate student, two years of coursework, once I'd completed that coursework, I was hired on the faculty where I was doing my PhD. And unfortunately, my father died in an automobile accident, and I had to go home because my sister and mother couldn't run the ranch. Uh, and as a result, I managed the ranch because it wasn't sufficiently large to be able to hire uh, outside ranch managers or farm managers. It was a dairy farm. And as a result, 
for four years by while I was on the faculty and finishing my own PhD, I was simultaneously managing the, the farm or the ranch. Um, and as a result, had to make a choice of whether I was going to stay uh, in the family business or continue to pursue my academic career. And quite obviously, I chose to pursue my academic career. How do you think that choice sort of impacted your life, either academically or personally or both? Well, it impacted it in a major way. It forced me to pursue, not forced me, but provided me with the opportunity to pursue uh, an avenue that was far different uh, than my parents and or the family business. Uh, more importantly, uh, I had firsthand experience of the two choices that I was faced with, either continuing with it as an academic, finishing my PhD, or going back to run the family farm. Um, and as a result of the excitement, the intellectual excitement of being on the faculty, writing my own dissertation, uh, trying to make uh, new discoveries, pushing out the frontiers of knowledge, simultaneously seven PhD students selected me as the director of their dissertations. And there was nothing more exciting than working with those PhD students trying to develop the foundation for their professional careers. And that made the choice easy because that was a lot more exciting uh, than getting up at 2 o'clock every morning and milking 130 cows. Now, you left academia in the middle of your academic career to go to Washington, D.C. Why did you do that, and how has that experience influenced you? Up until that point in time, uh, my colleagues and a number of my PhD students and I had done what we thought was creative research about reforming public policy. Public policy as it relates to renewable resources, as it relates to uh, agriculture, as it relates to prices uh, in various markets, the distortions that exist in various food commodity markets. Um, but even though we did all this wonderful research, it wasn't being adopted. It wasn't the foundation for reforming uh, public policies to uh, actually improve economic efficiency and also improve the distribution of wealth and income. So it was, it was very frustrating doing all this work. And then once it found its way into public discourse, it didn't make any difference in terms of the actual choices that were being made by governments here in the United States, the federal government, or governments in the rest of the world, uh, particularly the developed world. So as a result, I wanted to learn more about the political process. So once I had the opportunity for a political appointment as a senior economist on the council, and then subsequently as senior economist at the Agency for International Development in the U.S. State Department, I took a leave of absence from Berkeley, uh, spent four years in Washington, D.C. with a, a very small break coming back to Berkeley. Um, and my real purpose was to learn more about the political process, which then provided the foundation for doing a lot of work in political economy, which is uh, the integration of the political science discipline with the discipline of economics. And as a result, um, 
I have a new book that's coming out with Cambridge University Press uh, that focuses on economic policy from a political economic perspective and how we can take into account the political forces to get uh, efficient uh, public policies instituted and implemented not only here in the United States but in the rest of the world. Now, what was it like for you after being away for four years to come back to academia? Well, it turns out Washington, D.C. is very infectious. I mean, it's a very exciting place, particularly if there's an active debate going on about redesigning or reforming public policy. So coming back uh, after my leave of absence to Berkeley, um, I was looking for other challenges, and that's when I became dean of the College of Natural Resources, uh, which covers not only economics, uh, resource economics, agricultural economics, environmental economics, but it covers a number of fields in science, uh, particularly biotechnology, plant biology, microbial biology, uh, ecosystem science, forestry, uh, insect biology. So at the core, resource economics is integrated with natural sciences. In contrast to other fields of economics, our work uh, must take place at the nexus between economics and natural sciences. So it was very challenging to become dean uh, with this broad coverage to try to integrate and move in the direction of more interdisciplinary research. And were you at the same time trying to incorporate some of what you had learned and done in D.C.? Oh, no question about it. Uh, it was much of my work became much more informed uh, because I had a, f a firsthand experience uh, with regard to uh, governmental processes or political economic processes uh, that exist. I also spent a fair amount of time uh, in the development and the formation of the GATT negotiations, uh, which are negotiations that attempt to reduce the barriers to trade throughout the world. So I spent a lot of time in ministerial meetings uh, during my two uh, political appointments, one as we just discussed on the council and the second as chief economist at AID. You've also had a great deal of experience in the private sector. How has this changed your perspective on resource economics? Well, it, it, it's grounded it in the practical world. Um, as a result of my childhood learning about business firsthand, sitting at the dinner table worrying about whether, in fact, uh, there was going to be any profits in that particular year uh, or there would be losses, I learned about uh, economic decision-making on the ground. <laughs> and as a result of that, I've always had an interest uh, in entrepreneurship. Uh, and uh, three other faculty members and myself uh, formed uh, what you referred to earlier in the introduction uh, as Law and Economics Consulting Group, or LECG. Based on that experience, um, we started very small, and within uh, seven or eight years, we had well over 800 employees throughout the world. Uh, we took the company public. I learned a lot from that experience, and as a result, have attempted to repeat it on numerous occasions since. I, I'm curious, do you get a sense from your current students 
whether they are interested in pursuing a career in academia, in government, or in the private sector? It varies depending upon the student. Uh, most all students that begin their PhD programs, certainly here at Berkeley and certainly uh, in agriculture, environmental, or resource economics, when they first begin, their goal is to become academics. Now, along the way, many of them find that the kind of intensity, the kind of hard work that's required to pursue innovative and original research uh, is not uh, consistent with their skill set. So some of them then move in the direction of the private sector um, because they want to be involved in everyday decision making. Um, they may be good managers. Uh, or uh, they want to focus on a particular objective, and as a result, it's more natural for them to find their way into research think tanks or into government, governmental positions. Let's talk a little bit about some of the most important issues going on in the field of resource economics right now. Uh, the action right now is in recognizing the nexus between uh, economic policy, social policy, and nature. Uh, recognizing climate, the climate ch change that's taking place, global warming, what does that mean with regard to adaptations that must take place, um, how flexible our economic systems must be, um, scarcity of various natural resources, if not only uh, water, uh, but l good quality land. Um, these are major issues that our society is going to face over the course of the next century, in sharp contrast to the challenges we faced the last century. Uh, and resource economics uh, is, in fact, well positioned to search for and identify those opportunities for complementarities between economic growth, economic well-being, and conservation or preservation of the environment. Uh, obviously, energy efficiency and renewable technologies are top of mind in many fields right now. How are those issues playing out in your field? Well, they're playing out with regard to looking at the substitutability between fossil fuel-based energy versus renewable energy. And in the space of renewable energy, there's a number of different technologies that are out there that are being actively pursued. Uh, battery technologies, uh, the use of wind as a source for renewable energy, the use of sun, uh, the development of biofuels. Uh, and here, with regard to the development of biofuels, there's a sh very distinct intersection between the biological sciences, uh, particularly the work that is going on uh, searching for second-generation uh, commodities instead of using first-generation, namely corn or soybeans, uh, as the uh, feedstock for developing uh, biofuels as a complement and or a substitute for fossil fuel 
based energy. Uh, that work is going on throughout the country at land-grant universities and private companies. The Department of Energy is act actively involved in supporting research and development, uh, trying to discover new feedstocks. Miscanthus is one uh, particular crop that's out there that's being actively pursued. Switchgrass is another, uh, using different uh, types of forest. Um, aspen trees. Um, there are others as well. Uh, there's a huge amount of interest with regard to the venture capital community, um, and there is a lot of public-private uh, research and development organizations that have been established uh, that are trying to push out the available frontiers for, for knowledge, hoping that they achieve some commercial success which will lower the cost of using uh, those feedstocks and being more effective competitors uh, for fossil fuel-based energy sources. So what keeps you interested in this field day-to-day, year-to-year? Well, this field within the full array of different economic problems that we face are among the most serious. Um, because they go to the actual sustainability of future generations with regard to the assimilation capacity of nature. It goes to uh, issues associated with global warming. It goes to uh, water scarcity. It goes to the disease, human diseases that emerge from not properly sanitizing uh, drinking water. Uh, for consumption in the developing world. So these are all critical problems that can't and will not be solved by the private sector alone. We can't rely on capitalism to find the right answer with regard to conserving and sustaining our nature or our environment. Uh, it has to involve active participation by society through their elected governments to create the right incentives uh, for the adoption and adaptation of new technologies uh, that, coming back to my earlier point, that will support and foster complementarity between economic growth and conservation of the environment. Another current research interest of mine that is based in the core of agricultural economics is the development of future futures markets. Um, these markets help us get signals about not only what the value of some resource or commodity is today, but what its value is going to be a year from now, two years from now, ten years from now. And when we're talking about long futures or long horizons of this sort, we run into the problem of contractual commitments and counterparty risk. The great debate that's going on today with regard to reforming uh, financial regulations here in the United States and much of the rest of the world turns on the use of derivatives uh, and the risk uh, that took place in 
writing those derivatives and various companies taking huge notional exposure uh, and putting the entire companies at risk, the AIGs of the world. Um, what my current research is focusing on is how to design insurance schemes to deal with the counterparty risk and what's referred to as systemic risk. All of that work can be traced back to the development of futures markets uh, at the Chicago Board of Trade more than a century ago, uh, in which one of the principal uh, obstacles to discovering the value of a resource or a commodity a year from now or five years from now uh, was, in fact, the counterparty risk that a transactor faces when they enter into uh, such commitments. My research has demonstrated uh, that you can, through the design of recognizing the price of risk, uh, to, in effect, provide novation. And what novation is, is a concept that was developed long ago, but has to be reintroduced in the context of over-the-counter derivatives. Uh, and this is also important, critically important, with regard to properly pricing uh, natural resources uh, or, for that matter, renewable resources. Uh, you, you, you talked earlier about how the, sort of the, the field of thought has, has changed so much in, from the past century to this century. And I'm wondering where you see the field going in the next 30 years or so. I, I don't mean to imply the field of thought has changed. Instead, it's not, it's not so much the underlying uh, ideology that's changed. What has changed is that the human condition, the expansion of populations um, globally, particularly in developing the developing world, uh, has altered uh, the degree of slack that exists within the system with regard to ill-managing nature. That's my point. Uh, we no longer have the degrees of freedom that we had 100 years ago today. Those degrees of freedom are gone, and as a result, uh, we have to be more conscious and more engaged in conservation, in providing the right incentives for the adoption of new technologies that, in effect, focus on the interaction, hopefully the complementarity between economic growth and environmental conservation. Uh, are you hopeful about the direction things are going? Uh, yes, I believe that the effort that's taking place with regard to research and development upstream trying to discover new technologies uh, that will, uh, at the end of the process, result in adoption uh, by private sector participants. Uh, and as a result, if we create the necessary incentives, we will, um, as a result, inhibit the continuation with regard to greenhouse gases and global warming. Uh, we will also more effectively 
protect air quality. Uh, we have a lot to do with regard to enhancing not only the quality of water, but as well the quantity of water. Um, and there's a lot of infrastructure investment that has to take place there. And it, and it has become a critical part of public discourse. So yes, I believe it's promising, but we've got a, a long ways to go. Professor Rausler, thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.